Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Bram Stoker's Dracula. Of all the many incarnations of Vlad Tipis that stem from the 1897 novel by Bram Stoker, this one is my very favourite, and it would take something pretty special to unseat it. Despite the intense focus on the romantic relationship between Dracula and Mina, it's still one of the most faithful adaptations of the text, and for me, the most entertaining. Francis Ford Coppola is a truly legendary filmmaker. He helmed The Godfather 1 and 2, a pair that regularly top lists of the greatest movies of all time. He shot Apocalypse Now, a notoriously difficult production that drove its cast and crew to madness, appropriate for the themes of the text. He also filmed the disappointing third Godfather installment, syrupy Robin Williams starring premature aging weepy Jack, and the now criminally retired Michael Jackson alien dance-off Disney attraction, Captain EO. But for me, the crowning glory of this man is his Dracula, a movie that seems superficially like an update of the Universal version starring Bela Lugosi, but after just a few minutes reveals itself as a treasure box of peculiar filmmaking techniques, some of them based in theatrical magic shows and spiritualism from the Victorian era, some paying homage to the very earliest cinema tricks of the Lumiere brothers and George Méliès. It was very deliberately made with as little digital technology from 1992 as possible, with often surprisingly diligent in-camera effects on show. Visual effects supervisor Gene Warren Jr., who also worked on Terminator 2, then considered to be the pinnacle of computer-assisted filmmaking. When asked why they were not using up-to-date techniques like Death Becomes Her and The Lawnmower Man, stated that they would be using cutting-edge techniques for 1897. In other words, they were making the best version of the film they could had they been able to do so 95 years earlier upon the book's release. Almost every scene has something clever going on, making it a feast for the eyes, and we can further confirm that in 4K, the cinematography of Michael Ballhaus is captured in deep, shadowy blacks and passionate reds. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Sharon Shaw. Hello, Sharon. Hello. Dracula was a real person, Vlad Tipis III, a.k.a. Vlad the Impaler, born 1428 and made Prince of Wallachia three times during his official lifetime. The romance between Dracula and his wife Elisabetta, reincarnated seemingly in both body and spirit as Mina Murray, was added to the beginning of the otherwise pretty damn faithful storyline from the book, and obviously bookended at the end. This was conceived by scriptwriter James V. Hart, who found out the following. The real-life Vlad Tipe's first wife, whose name is not recorded, died during the siege of his castle in 1462. The Turkish army surrounded Poinari Castle, led by his brother Radu the Handsome. Did you give yourself this name? An archer shot an arrow through a window into Vlad's main quarters with a message warning him that Radu's army was approaching. Apparently the archer was a former servant of Vlad who sent the warning out of loyalty despite having converted to Islam to get out of enslavement by the Turks. Upon reading the message, Vlad's wife flung herself off the tower into a tributary of the Archesh River, flowing below the castle. According to legend, she remarked that she would rather have her body rot and be eaten by the fish of the Archesh than be led into captivity by the Turks. Today, the tributary is called Raoul Doemne, the Ladies' River. 
So again, that part of the film is kind of based on truth. With a little rejigging to connect it to the false news of Vlad's death, Hart considered that this Juliet-like suicide would give Dracula a tragic and relatable beef with the Almighty, leading to his pact with the forces of darkness that Stoker's novel picks up with again 435 years later. We'll be talking about this element quite a bit. And shrewdly, Coppola had the insight to gather all the actors together before filming began for several days on end as they read through the entire book together. Apparently they stayed at his ranch in the Napa Valley. Uh, what uh, effect did this seem to have or did it achieve within the film that you noticed? Well, it meant that he could lean on them for character insight, which is always useful for a director, I think, because it means that they don't have to think of everything. Mm -hmm. And he encouraged them to come to him if there were bits from the book that weren't in the original script that they felt ought to be. And he observed that, to start with, this meant that they were all trying to put stuff back in for their character yeah. and their characters ended to beef up, up their roles. About three times bigger than they were originally. But, for example, they re-scripted Mina's introduction to her staying at Lucy. Yeah. At Lucy's house. Oh, yeah. And if, frankly, if that came from Winona Ryder picking out better bits of the book and, and restructuring her her lines to make it sound more in character for Mina, then she did a superb job, frankly. Yeah, the deleted scenes of this film are 28 minutes of shocking crap, which should have been nowhere near the final cut of the Absolutely. film. Absolutely. They're very telling in terms of the, the changes that took place as the, uh, the filming progressed. Yeah. Coppola chose to invest a significant amount of the budget in costumes in order to showcase the actors whom he considered the jewels of the feature. He had an artist storyboard the entire film in advance to carefully illustrate each planned shot, a process which created around a thousand images. This is like Peter Jackson with Lord of the Rings. That's what I was thinking when we were watching the making of material. I think this is why it's so tight, why it's so focused and why they, they pre-visualised everything. Uh, he turned the drawings into a choppy animated film and added music and then spliced in scenes from the French version of Beauty and the Beast that Jean Cocteau directed in 1946, along with paintings by Gustave Klimt and other symbolist artists. See, again, he got a lot of inspiration from uh, um, uh, art and paintings, which Del Toro does. So you've got some Jackson in there, some Del Toro. There's no wonder that this strikes many chords with me. He showed the animated film to his designers and gave them an idea for mood and theme that he was aiming for. He also uh, asked the set costume designer to simply bring him designs which were weird. Weird became a code word for let's not do formula, he later recalled. He says in the commentaries repeatedly that all films seem to look the same. That you, if you assemble all the uh, uh, movies of the past 30 years, they're going to look roughly similar. But if you assemble all the art from the last 30 years, they're going to look different. Now, this is mainly because mediums are, are vastly different and, and, and uh, ultimately when you put a camera on and you film two, three people talking, you're going to get some similarities there. Whereas with a paintbrush, you can interpret that in any number of ways. Uh, but he very specifically wanted to do something that didn't feel the standard. He said, give me something that either comes from the research or that comes from your own nightmares. I gave them paintings, I gave them drawings, and I talked to them about how I thought the imagery could work. I feel like he, he missed his calling. 
Now, we could talk about sets or costumes next, but what was established during the making of materials was that the costumes are the sets. Uh, Eiko Ishioka, who won an Academy Award for these outfits, very much set out to draw the eye here. One of the most intriguing things about the costume design for this is that the, the woman who was put in charge of putting the costumes together was not a costume designer. She was a production designer. Uh-huh. And so she was coming at them from a, a position of construction rather than from a position of you know, soft fabrics and flowing materials. And I think this is why there was that slight conflict between how she wanted to dress the actors and their slight frustration that they couldn't move as well as they wanted to be able to. And obviously that restricted how they put across the characters. Because she had built movie architecture around them. Exactly. Now, in terms of theatre costumes, one thing that I've always been a firm believer in is the idea that the restrictions of a costume are actually really important for the character. Yeah. Gary Oldman said uh, to uh, Aiko that uh, his favourite costume, if he could choose as an actor, would be just jeans and a T-shirt. That way he could just forget about the costume and be the character. But to which she replied that that's great for her too because it means she doesn't have to do any work. Yeah. However, Gary, let's move on and actually do what we're meant to be doing here, shall we? But um, th- that's just the way Gary works. But p- for people like Viggo Mortensen in uh, Lord of the Rings, having the Aragorn costume on and the sword in his hand gave him Aragorn to be. Mm. And I've always found from a, an acting perspective that the right costume will show you how that character moves it will show you how they stand and all of that informs on how they feel and so how they put across their lines shoes are one of the most important things for me i find it very difficult to portray a character until i get the shoes sorted out clothes maketh the man exactly um but the in terms of the the actual costumes themselves there were three specific colors that i wanted to discuss Uh because it's a very vivid film there are many many colors okay you're gonna go with red gold and green no oh so you can talk about gold okay but red green and white okay okay now first off they're the christmas colors that's yeah. Which means that you immediately have... Dracula's Christmas! Yeah. By the way, every time I do the count from Sesame Street to take a shot, folks. <laughs> It'll happen. The presence of Christmas colours, for me, immediately gives you the uh, hint of religious overtones. Mm-hmm. So there's that for a start. But red, green and white represent three very specific things for me in this film. And th- these are the colours that seem to be the most prominent. And when you say red, there's many shades. There's some very vivid orange, there's some pink, there's some um, sort of more scarlet red, but red overall. Mm -hmm. So green is purity and vulnerability. Hmm. Now, that would normally take the place of white, traditionally, if you're using symbolic colours. But in this, it's green. Uh, Elizabeth wears a green dress, mm-hmm. specifically with a leaf design on it, when she falls 
from the tower, from the castle. And you see that theme of green with leaves on repeated in Mina's outfits throughout the film. Because she's young, she's pure, she's not been touched or corrupted with the... In decaying influence of Dracula's exactly. death force. Exactly, and it's it's nature. It's uh, it's the things as they should be. It's things as they should be. It's what he really wants to connect with, and it's what he wants to save him. Hmm. There is a moment in the film when they switch, and he is wearing a green suit with a leaf design. And I'll expand on that in a second because it links in with. Uh, the use of red. Uh, But the other point where green is prominent is at the party. Mina is wearing a green dress with a little white jacket which has the leaf design on it, so that incorporates that into her outfit. Lucy is also wearing a green dress, but hers has snakes on it. It's my snake dress, yes. Indeed. Now, Lucy is using green in a fake way at this point. She is playing the coquettish maiden and she is trying to make herself look pure and vulnerable, but that's not her natural role and that is not her natural colour. And the snakes on her dress play into her movements later on after she's died. Uh, Coppola very specifically got her to play it in a an animalistic way and she went for a lizard yeah so that fits in with the snakes as well so that's the green the partner for this is red you see red and green most often together when Mina wears green Lucy wears pink or orange when Dracula wears green Mina is wearing red it's the only time I think throughout the film that she wears something red and it's one of the very very few times that she wears something that's not green now red obviously there's the the symbolism of the blood but specifically red is power was that his green suit with the leaf design that's right here. yeah okay so the red is her almost flamenco looking dress that when she dances with him absolutely now for the most part she's been wearing the green symbolizing purity and vulnerability and in the intro scene you've got Elizabeth wearing the green showing her vulnerability she is the most vulnerable person in that scene Dracula's wearing red he's holding the power and in the scene where Mina's wearing red the power has shifted he is being honest he is talking about Elizabeth and how much he loved her and he is making himself vulnerable at that point and she's got the power because she's the one who's deciding whether their relationship continues on. This isn't accidental, yeah. I I don't think so. Certainly that leaf pattern is way too... Specific. Specific and recurring to be a mistake or to be uh, an accident. And in fact, I think the leaf design on his suit almost exactly duplicates the leaf design on Elizabeth's dress at the beginning. Yeah. So that's the green and the bulk of the red the the other scene where red is particularly prominent is when Jonathan first meets Dracula and there is almost no colour in the castle anywhere Harker's wearing some kind of faded brown most of the the scene is grey there's a little bit of black but Dracula himself is wearing this incredibly vivid scarlet robe it draws the eye entirely and it really cements the 
the sense that he has all the power in that particular dynamic. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, where White comes into this, because, like I said, White would normally have the role that Green has in this film, which is that of purity and vulnerability. White, in this film, is deceit. It's a lie. The two particularly noticeable White costumes are Lucy's wedding dress... Which ends up being her funeral gown. Which ends up being her funeral gown, but very specifically at this point, she is not uh, a virginal, pure bride. She's already effectively wed herself to Dracula and at this point has got to the stage where she's eating children. Okay? So that dress is entirely lying about portraying who she is. The other one is Dracula's suit. He's sitting at a dining table alone, and there is a... Is that where it fades from the woodcut, the one that Van Helsing's looking at in the book, and then it cuts to him? That's right. So you've got this very stark juxtaposition between Van Helsing's outlining of Dracul's crimes in life. Yeah. Of the horrendous murders that he committed. It it fades from the woodcut where he's eating human flesh at a table to... To this very refined refined, gentleman sitting at a dining table. And so his white suit at that point indicates this is a lie. This is not who he really is. It's not even really who he's trying to be. It's not a version of himself that he can sustain. And he has let Mina go off not knowing that he is Dracula because when he reveals it to her later, she appears to be amazed. Absolutely. Even though it feels like she knew it. She's not stupid. Mm. She just hates the fact that she can't deny it anymore. Absolutely. So those are the the specific three colours that especially drew my eye and what Mm. they meant to me. The uh, armour that uh, he wears at the beginning is uh, a flayed man with the head of a wolf. And it is one of the most striking suits of armour in in all of cinema, because you won't forget it. It seems impractical, bright and draws the eye, and it's it's horrifying. And to have that stomping through the battlefield towards you, you'd shit your pants. And again, it dominates the uh, screen, and it emphasises how raw he is at the point that Elizabeth has been effectively cast out of heaven at that uh, stage. He's a human railing against God, but he's wearing this suit that equates to the barbaric acts he's been performing in God's name. There's a lot of... We're going to take God as an absolutely real, totally working force within this narrative, because it's a very religious text. Yeah? God is effectively an unseen, unspeaking character. Okay. Vlad believes him to be real, ergo he has to be. And uh, the, yeah, as you say, the the, the bright red, uh, combined with the the giant bun hair of this, this, the the old white-haired version of Dracula, that is straight-up iconic. It's, that's never been done in any other version of Dracula, and if they did it, they would be doing this. Mm, yeah. But if Luke Evans ever turns up with that on for in, in some kind of sequel in the Dark Universe, you know what they're doing. I will also mention gold, because the gold travelling robe that uh, Dracula wears, uh, if, you go, uh, if you Google Gustav Klimt's painting, The Kiss, it, it appears to be a very abstract painting where the human form is, is warped and twisted 
to express the feeling of a kiss rather than uh, the anatomically correct uh, you know to a man and a woman kissing but the the this gold robe covered in these like patches of, of different uh, uh, panels that almost looks metallic is um, is what Dracula wears when he's traveling and he wears it to go to England and he wears it to come back from England and it's almost got this pompous finery about it like he's this pharaoh so when he uh, it's almost like um, he's in like he carries his sarcophagus with him so that when the gypsies are transporting him uh, it, it, it connotes a certain level of almost deifying respect for him that they have and it's ironic that that's the outfit he goes to his eternal rest in because pharaohs are notorious for bringing a lot of stuff with them and he effectively needs nothing at that point because he's got what he needed mm. it also seems strange that this is his richest outfit it's the most elaborate it looks the most expensive and this is the one he lies in grave dirt in yeah you'd think he'd wear his least good outfit yeah, for that one you really would but I, I mean it could be that the gold thread's supposed to keep the light out if anybody inadvertently opens the box it could be that anybody who sees it is meant to think oh my god he must be like proper aristocracy better leave him alone <laughs> Would you say that the uh, mostly off-white colours of the uh, Brides of Dracula are, go with the deceit side of things? Yeah, I think so. Because they, they start off by using Mina's voice to seduce Harker. And... They hide their scary forms under extremely seductive faces. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, more on them in a second, folks. Don't you worry. Welcome to my home. Enter freely of your own will and leave some of the happiness you bring. Count Dracula? I am Dracula. And I bid you welcome, Mr. Harcourt, to my house. Come here. Sound design. The use of sound and the soundscape in the film is one of the techniques that allows the uh, cracks in the old style of uh, visual effects to be smoothed over. So when they're doing the theatrical things, when Jonathan goes and explores the castle, they, they shot rats running across a girder the right way up with a black mat behind it that effectively occluded that part of the film. Then they inverted that and put it upside down, and then they filmed the rest of that scene with Jonathan walking through the castle. So effectively, that rats walking through was seen within the film rather than it being chroma keyed in. So it doesn't pop out like it's not a, a, an object that's been placed in the screen digitally because it was actually there as far as the film was concerned. It's just upside down and, and, uh, and now displaced. But the way that the, the sound effects work, they've got, you've got this kind of constantly um, uh, breathing, kind of backwards pulling, like whispers and, and hissing and uh, humming. And, and there's a sense that something, an invisible world is being touched, especially when you're near any of the supernatural characters. So when the uh, um, you know fun little techniques get used, which would have been used a hundred years ago or, or, or more, 
it doesn't feel like an old film because you've got all of this uh, uh, complex sound work going on. So you're being pulled in one direction while your brain is looking at the screen and what's going on. If I was going to composite two pieces of dialogue together in a podcast, having cut out 10 minutes in between, and I needed to make it seem like, like the person speaking goes from one point to the next without it feeling at all like they've suddenly changed direction and without the the slight nuance and change in their voice or other people around them talking standing out i would put music underneath it in fact i did precisely that about four times at the beginning of this podcast you may not have noticed or just something unifying to just make you feel like what you're hearing first before the join is entirely related to what you hear after the join right so the sound helps with the blend yeah. effectively and the the eerie otherworldly soundscape helps your brain accept anything slightly uncanny mm. or not quite right that your eyes are seeing it's telling you uh, with different signals yes what's going on is strange it should be strange so it makes the strangeness feel more consistent, which means that you don't question little individual it feels bits more deliberate, of strangeness. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. It also might help uh, uh, people not puzzle out for themselves, how did they do that? How did they do this? And simply accept that what is going on is weird. Mm. Yeah. It's a shame they can't find some way of doing that for 3D. It is. There's a really neat moment in the film when, uh, like just a tiny little technique that most people wouldn't even notice quite how it was done or even question quite how it was done when van helsing pushes the communal wafer into mina's forehead near the end and she's a vampire so she goes ah and it burns her there was no added digital effects and they didn't uh, you know cut from one moment to the next that was all done in camera to get that mark onto her head the little device he pressed against her uh, forehead emitted cigarette smoke and laid a little, very, very thin layer of a prosthetic, the little red patch, onto her head with sticky glue on one side and KY jelly on the other, so it would effectively stick to her head, and then when he lifted his hand away, it would stay there. But it's done so quickly and so smoothly with the cigarette smoke to be that transitional material, Mm. it allows you to go, oh, so that's happened because of this. If they did that with digital effects they would make it pop much more. They would make you see the mark on her head much more. Perhaps they'd be like, no, no, up the value of that. Make it redder, make it redder, make it pop more. So they would draw more attention to the effects. It's it's the same reason that you would see uh, an alien now, if you're doing it with CG, the entire body of the alien, and it would be seen in broad daylight, and it would be moving around, and it would be a fully, you know, created creature that had, a, you know, bloodstream, and it was carefully, you know, created by artists and it was definitely the alien and it would seem fake as fuck because you know that doesn't exist but if it's in the shadows and it's moving about and you know that that shouldn't exist but because they're restricted by having to use uh, you know practical your mind plays tricks to, to make you feel that that part of the alien that like the the dome of its head its moving elbow its its fingers those bits of the alien belong to something that's real if you see the whole thing you go well that's cg that's why 
a lot of the time, practical effects feel more real, principally because when they're occurring in, in, in the film, something is actually physically happening there. And uh, But a lot of the time, it's also because they don't deliberately draw the eye. They just kind of have to hope that the effect gets pulled off in camera, as opposed to, fuck it, we'll lay it on afterwards. Mm. We'll just, like, tweak and tweak and tweak. And um, the uh, uh, visual effects supervisor mentioned, uh, like, 14 years later in the making of materials, that it just feels like creating, like, the the, the working to to build these sets and to, uh, to, to create these things from scratch together with a team just seems more fun than clicking on a mouse. And it just made me think of the idea of banks and banks of computer mice just... Like, working, working, working on Goblin Town. Just, we've got to make Goblin Town better. Just, like, more passes, more passes. Like, render every single little bit. And everyone's doing a little bit of it. But imagine actually crafting Goblin Town from from wood and paint and, and, and polystyrene and, and, and actually working with the same six or seven people every day for, for, for weeks as you create this real place that then actors come into and, and, and work in. And then it gets torn down or maybe taken to a museum if you're lucky. That experience of crafting that thing is entirely different to being in the cubicle on your own, click, click, clickety, click, making your bit of it far closer to a solitary experience if you're working in digital. In that, like you can be part of a thousand man team, but everyone's working alone. Mm. Well, the simple act of crafting something with your hands, and I'm not going to sit here and say that one's better than the other, but it's different. There's a uh, a world of difference between downloading a knitting pattern into a 3D printer and having it make you a scarf and actually sitting there with needles and a ball of wool and knitting the scarf for yourself. Music. When you ask an adult about the music of Wojciech Kilar, you're likely to get some furrowed brows. But if you played them the Dracula theme, they would almost certainly recognise it, even if only from trailers. It is overly baleful and threatening with chanting voices, a pulsating momentum that describes in sound the vampire closing in. But throughout the score, there's also mournful choral sections of heart-stopping funereal beauty. I do not use the word perfect, if I can help it, but this score is ideally suited to the film it surrounds, possessing the operatic impact of Howard Shaw's Lord of the Rings, even if it is only given one-fifth the total time to develop individual themes for characters or places. And again, I do not say that lightly. The, uh, the, the, the score here, it's certainly not the sort of thing you'd listen to for fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's much more atmospheric and, and uh, it's much less the kind of thing you listen to to relax or even to really be transported. But if you put it on, it will transport you to the events of this film. Mm, indeed. And I think for me, the major standout theme is the love theme. When Mina and Dracula are meeting for the first time and then it plays again when they get together later. Yeah. That music manages to make what might come off as very cheesy actually quite powerful and there are going to be people who've considered this film to be just cheese and that's absolutely fine but uh, for, for me I invest mm. in this I one. think honestly there's something very specific and particular about 
the nature of the relationship between Mina and Dracula and it's partly the fact that the seeds are in the novel but not much development and they've really run with it. It's partly how strongly Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder lean into it and really emphasise how much they feel when they're together. Mm. And in part, it's going to be the fact that I saw this film for the first time when I was about 15, 16. Mm -hmm. And it has the vividness and the intensity that the world has when you're that age. Everything is brighter and your emotions feel sharper and when you take on or certainly for me when I take on the stories and music and everything that I was watching and listening to when I was a teenager it all seems way more intense and it still does, even now. I can see the echoes of how I felt when I saw it the first time. I feel like this had the most cultural impact when it comes to vampire romances mm. the, than anything which came before it. And so we can trace Twilight and uh, various other vampire-related melodrama back mm. to this specific version of Dracula. Yeah, well, the, the whole tying in of soulmates and the idea that this is somebody who eternity wants you to be with mm. for whatever reason yeah they pulled this in Highlander 3 mm. which again is coming in the next few months folks the year 1462 Constantinople had fallen Muslim Turks swept into Europe with a vast superior force striking at Romania threatening all of Christendom from Transylvania arose a Romanian knight of the Sacred Order of the Dragon, known as Draculia. On the eve of the battle, his bride, Elisabetta, whom he prized above all things on earth, knew that he must face an insurmountable force from which he might never return. Let's go all the way back to the beginning and uh, Van Helsing's narrated intro. Uh, the, this is one of the most inexpensive battles I've ever seen and it's incredibly refreshing every time I go back to it because since Lord of the Rings, every epic film that, that has swords in any way has to have a massive battle in it and all the battles are now starting to look the same and you have very little invested in each army and especially if you're starting a film with it, don't give a fuck. Nobody cares about armies. We care about the people who might be in the army, but you've got to spend a long time making us care, and they may as well be engaged in a very, very small, much less expensive fight under those circumstances. Mm, because we don't care about individual soldiers or swathes of soldiers getting killed. We're just like, oh, this looks horrible, but there's nothing really at stake yet, like I said, especially at the beginning of a film. What I really like about this is the thing about we're using film techniques that would be cutting edge 1897. Mm -hmm. This is theatre techniques 
from the 1500s. Yeah, it's it's ancient. So it's, it's time specific for the time frame of the film. It's uh, shadow puppetry, effectively. You've mm. got um, uh, men walking around in armour uh, with a couple of other people in the background to give you the impression of a battle. Absolutely. And so it's all silhouettes and uh, the swiftness and economy of just getting to the point. So there's not a giant battle scene. They just go, it's a battle, moving on. Mm. And, uh, you know, so that you get to see Dracula being terrible, by the way. Like, you know, they, they make no bones about the fact that Vlad TP's impaled people wasn't all that bothered about it. And this was kind of uh, d- done deliberately uh, lo-fi to set the tone uh, so that people would know what to expect moving in. And uh, we get to see... Um, we're going to make note of almost every single clever bit of... Uh, um, unusual or old-school techniques that they uh, use throughout the film, so you can look out for them next time. At the death of Elizabeth, the camera pulls forward as she's toppling over the castle battlements and out the window, and it's very disorienting because you get this sense of immense, immense scale as she sort of disappears downwards. But the, the sense of which way is up forwards and which way is down is kind of done away with just as you, you know, turn the corner... And that sets you up for the way gravity sometimes refuses to work in this film, especially around Castle Dracula. Mm, Yeah. They play with gravity so much in many of the the shots in this and it's it's used I think in fact I think uh, he even refers to them as gravity shots in Mm. the making of material. Yeah. But the it's used to emphasize again uncanny movement beings that shouldn't be able to get around in this way but they do and when Dracula comes back and uh, finds her dead the original version of this in the deleted scenes the when the cross starts gouting blood the whole room fills up and Elizabeth's body is effectively drowned a second time, this time in blood and then it cuts to a horrible dissolve of um, the modern day well, 1897 Mina getting her hair washed at Lucy's house and it's like no that's that's terrible that is a terrible way to start your Dracula film thank god they didn't because the audience would be going oh god poor Princess Elisabetta and they'd be focusing on her more than Dracula and then you know as he's roaring and getting you know and, and screaming you're, you're looking at this this body being covered with with blood and uh, you know covered over, and then it's like, oh god, what's going to happen to her? Oh, she's already dead. Oh, she's alive. It's all right then. No problem. No problem. She's. Is it hurt? No. That's actually. Oh, it's now. So that might be a. And you're too busy thinking about who the hell this is. Mm. There's a potential theme misinterpretation there as well. The the way it is in the final cut the amount of blood that pours from the cross is relatively small and as it starts to flow towards her and just touches on the edges of her hair it feels wrong yeah it feels like corruption she shouldn't have been left there and it's not fair that she's now getting stained by this blood that shouldn't have touched her shouldn't have affected her if you drown her in it if you completely cover her and totally soak the entire church in it then it feels like it could be a bit more this is his punishment for being so bloodthirsty. Yeah. Which is not where the story goes. 
And it doesn't really make sense because Dracula is angry because, as far as he's concerned, he spent his whole life serving the church. And then this clergyman, played by Anthony Hopkins, in a very pointed fashion, it's like, this, isn't, this isn't just an immediate stunt casting to have him angry at old men. It, it seems like they're going, right, well, this clergyman was reincarnated as, uh, as Van Helsing years from, uh, from, from then, which is an odd choice, but it shows that Dracula would hate this guy from, you know, you know to his core. Mm. Well, it could be that this was Van Helsing's great-great-great-great-grandfather. Maybe. Or it could simply be that he makes a really good representation of authority mm-hmm. that gets to do whatever it wants. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, the, the authority tells uh, Vlad that uh, Elizabeth's soul is damned, so after all of the uh, uh, time and effort and blood he spilled in the name of the church, the church has effectively cast his wife out because of a deception. And he dooms himself by uh, hating this very real and present god. And a suitable amount of supreme intensity is given to this uh, scene it you know raises into this crescendo of choral voices with the title and rather than just going for sort of blood dripping uh, uh, titles as as it, you know blood dribbles down as you would expect especially since that dracula logo was everywhere in 92 it's embossed in metal as though to uh, uh, speak of the, uh, the the legend of Dracula but like something you'd find in a crypt somewhere you know somewhere hidden away rather than um, you know something designed just to scare you it's a really great way of not cheapening the film and you can see fire reflected in the steel and it lends the whole film a certain weight it makes it clear that this is not a horror movie it's not here to simply scare you and freak you out yeah there's a very deliberate holy grail parallel when he uh, grabs the cup and and, and drinks from the blood pouring out of the uh, cross because you know effectively abiding by the rules drink of my blood drink of this wine for it is my blood Mm. he is doing precisely what he's been told to do and that's the sacrament that seals the deal yeah absolutely this is this is his fuck you effectively it's the blood is the life and it shall be mine he's stealing immortality Mm. in part I think because if Elisabetta is going to be denied Christian burial because she's a suicide, then his way of thinking, if he's thinking at all at this point, is, well, then I don't want one either. Mm. I will take from you. Mm, absolutely. Because if you think about the, the crimes, inverted commas, that he commits as post-death Dracula, mm. as old Dracula and, you know, going on into turning the women into vampires and killing Lucy and trying to do the same to Mina. It's quite petty. kind of pales into insignificance compared to what he's already done as a living man. Yeah. He's not even quite a serial killer. He takes his time and... It's just that the latter was sanctioned by God Mm. or sanctioned by the church and the former was not. We won't be talking about Dracula untold, but it is a very boring boring version of this same uh, uh, intro. It's this intro meets 300, but for kids, it's pointless. A vampire story with no balls and no blood. 
Then we, uh, immediately after the super intense opening, we cut to London, 1897, and it's super civilized. It's sort of in, in a drawing room. Yes, he lost his tiny mind. And, and you know, you must go to uh, Castle Dracula. Oh, oh, I, oh, I suppose I shall. Which is kind of hammer horror. Yes. It's very sort of British. Uh, although it's, you know, a lot more atmospheric and a, a lot less um, creaky than Hammer Horror, even though they did relish the fact that they were working purely with sets rather than on location. Absolutely. And I really like the fact that you have, again, this juxtaposition of this hyper-civilised society and, conversely, Renfield, who is rapidly descending into a version of reality that nobody else recognises and, and will not accept but he's right it's renfield's reinterpreting the world as as uh, he sees fit and there's a it feels like there's a whole untold story about what the hell happened to poor renfield but you can piece it together in the original universal version renfield took the place of harker and you follow renfield to uh, um dracula's castle and it, it kind of they mirror one another in terms of their um their journey but uh when Jonathan goes to uh, meet Mina, she's tapping away and at uh, her typewriter and, and, and sort of giving us the... I'm like, If there's a narrator for this, there, like, there's loads of different narrators. This is something that I took for the Cartographer's Handbook to, to give people an idea of, like, to describe this world, I'm going to need more than one person. I'm going to need a lot of people. And that's abided throughout New Century. Mm. But um, Mina is probably the most steady voice in terms of... She can't get the biggest overview of Dracula, but she's the best voice on the ground, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Well, her her perception of Dracula is what makes him a tragic hero rather than a villain. Yeah. So her voice is really important, but the the multiple perspective telling of the story, that's straight out of the original novel. Yeah. Stoker wrote it in a kind of reportage style so you've got different people telling the story in different ways you've got newspaper reports about the ship you've got you know captain's manifests people's diaries and and i love each character has a different voice that's right and i love the way it gets interpreted for the the visual format so you've got harker's diary which is handwritten mina types her journal and so you get to see and hear this really old-fashioned typewriter when she's telling her part of the story. I even like the fact that they bring in Jack Seward's wax cylinder doctor's notes. And, yeah, I loved the fact that you used all that for the the Cartographer's Handbook and how that eventually evolved into the way New Century was told overall. It's a brilliant way of showing a world that is seen through the eyes of multiple people and therefore feels more real. Mm. So when you read the uh, original Dracula book, you are effectively placed in the role of detective, piecing together what's actually happening from the clues left by each account. Because a lot of the accounts go on for quite a while with only gi- only giving you some important details amidst a lot of, of uh, I don't want to say waffle, but uh, padding. Well, it allows you to create a world full of details and let the reader work out which bits they think are important. Stephen King uses it a fair bit. He used Joe it for Rowling Carrie, it. he used it for It. Yeah, Joe Rowling uses it. Yeah. So let's talk about Keanu Reeves. 30th May, Castle Dracula. I think strange things which I dare not confess to my own soul. 
The Count. The way he looked at Mina's picture fills me with dread. As if I have a part to play in a story that is not known to me. Because um, we can do a character study throughout, but uh, I think we should like specialize uh, at certain points. And Keanu Reeves as Jonathan. Well, first off, he talks to Mina, and it becomes immediately apparent that she's more passionate than him. He's very sort of stiff, and she uh, wants to kiss a lot, and is you know sad to see him go. And so you get an idea that they're not entirely perfectly suited to each other. Before I go into that, full disclosure here. Because uh, Keanu Reeves is a really, really key element to why I enjoyed this film quite so much. Huh. Because Keanu Reeves, back in his Bill and Ted days, was like my first real movie crush. Mm-hmm. Posters on the wall, the works, would watch anything of his that I could get my hands on, which resulted in me seeing my own private Idaho at a very inappropriate age and not really knowing what was going on. And the... Curtains? It's such a 90s haircut. It's such a 90s haircut. The contrast between his sort of holding her slightly at arm's length all the time and her desperately wanting to be closer to him, she really, really wanted to get married before he left. Mm. And that's quite key to their relationship because... If they were married when he went over there, it might have put a different slant on what happens while he's there and what happens when he gets back. But it's quite amusing the way she puts it across because the way it came over to me was the reason she really wanted to get married before he left was so that she could get a shag in. (laughs) So that I can get a shag in. (laughs) Clickety-clack. Absolutely. And, And that carries over then into her conversations with Lucy which characterises their relationship in that Lucy seems equally desperate for sex and that's why she's so besotted with the idea of gotta get a marriage proposal gotta get a marriage proposal because and and it just it personifies what the Dracula story is usually interpreted as being about which is the Victorian right angle of being both completely obsessed with and utterly repulsed by and terrified of sex. Exemplified in the line, uh, disgustingly awful, when Mina looks at the Arabian Nights and the the, uh, uh, rather fruity pictures in there, Mm. uh, and then says to uh, Lucy, can a man and a woman really do that? Because she's also fascinated. Absolutely. And... She's fascinated because it's forbidden. What is it with my forbidden closet of mystery? Hmm. And then they wondered why people got so obsessed with it because they were desperately trying to cover it all up and hide it all and go, oh, no, 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 people can't, well, can't do this. They can't want to do this. It's terrible. Let's look to the internet ticker for Keanu Reeves' accent and how people oh. received it. Empire's Tom Hibbert it's criticised so Keanu Reeves' casting uh, and was not the only critic to consider the resultant performance to be weak. In a career retrospectively compiled by Entertainment Weekly, 
Reeves was described as having been out of his depth and frequently blasted off the screen by Oldman. Total film writer Nathan Dittam included Reeves in his 2010 countdown of the 29 worst movie miscastings, describing him as a dreary, milky nothing, a black hole of sex and drama. Josh Winning, also of Total Film, said that Reeves' turn spoiled the motion picture. He mentioned it in the 2011 list of the 50 performances that ruin movies and wrote, you can visibly see Keanu attempting not to end every one of his lines with Dude, the result, a performance that looks like the young actor's perpetually constipated, painful for all parties. A feature by Ask Men called Acting Miscast That Ruin Movies expressed a similar sentiment. It's one thing to cast Keanu Reeves as an esteemed British lawyer, but it's quite another to ask him to act alongside Gary Oldman and Anthony Hopkins. The two Oscar nominees ran circles around the poor Canuck, exposing his lack of range, shoddy accent and abysmal instincts for all to see. Reeves' attempt at London vernacular has been cited as one of the worst accents, if not the, the worst, in the history of recorded film. Music. Those animals. Virgin Media journalist Limar Assault, enlisting the top ten worst movie accents, wrote, Keanu Reeves is consistently terrible at delivering any accent apart from Californian surfer dude, but it's his English effort in Dracula that tops the lot. Overly posh and entirely ridiculous, Reeves' performance is as painful as it is hilarious. Salt said that Winona Ryder is equally rubbish, an opinion echoed by Glenn Levy in Time. In his top ten worst fake British accents, he said that both actors came up short in that accent, and some might argue acting department, and that their London dialect made for a literal horror show. Conversely, Mark Savlov, writing for the Austin Chronicle, Pine that Ryder was more impressive than Reeves and suited the role. Ryder seemed the perfect choice for Dracula's obscure object of desire. Mina Harker is far better than Reeves. Speak. Okay, that's harsh. Yeah. But they're, they're not wrong, but I think they're putting the emphasis in the wrong place. The accents the are emphasis. appalling. Yeah, the accents are absolutely appalling and they're worse... No, Winona Ryder's is worse at the beginning... She actually seems to lean into it as the movie progresses, and by the time she gets into the properly dramatic scenes, it's working for her. At the beginning, she sounds like she's got three plumstones in her mouth. Um, quacking plums. Quacking plums, indeed. She literally, there's one point where she's talking, and it sounds like they've told her, keep your tongue behind your teeth and don't let it fall out, because it'll make you sound very English, and that's just ridiculous. But... To say that their performances are bad, even to say that Keanu Reeves' performance is bad, his performance is not bad at all. It's just when he talks, because he can't do the accent. But that's fairly consistent for his entire career, to be fair. What's his best performance? John Wick. And he hardly speaks in the whole thing. He's you knew a, I was going to say it. I didn't mean. know you were going to say it, because that's what I would have said as well. He's a very physical actor. And if you look at how he's standing, how he's emoting on his face, how he touches people, how he gestures... He does it as Jack Traven in Speed. Yeah, but as, as Jonathan Harker, that all works for me totally. He's awkward, he's shy, he doesn't really know who he is, he's insecure with his place in life. The reason he hasn't wanted to marry Mina is because he doesn't think that he has enough to offer her yet. He's hoping that being part of this big deal with Dracula will give him the promotion and the oomph that he needs to feel that he's worthy of her. And that all comes across visually to me. I just think people are very particular 
about British accents. See, for the longest time, I thought to myself, uh, you had Carrie Elwes right there, and you gave him the much more limited role of uh, Lord Arthur Homewood when he could have been your Jonathan Harker, and you ruined Dracula with Keanu Reeves. But in more recent years, I've been thinking, no, you know what? Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker is ideally suited for this film. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. And also, you want to talk about some bad British accents? Sadie Frost isn't exactly fantastic, and And she's she's British! British. (laughs) (laughs) Let me explain. Keanu Reeves as Jonathan Harker makes us cringe because we feel like he's being naive and foolish and he's awkward and we consider to ourselves, you're in so far out of your depth, Keanu. But it perfectly mirrors how out of his depth Jonathan Harker is. If he was Carrie Elwes, totally calm and, and, you know, able to be Jonathan Harker and very uh, distinctly, you know, British and, and, and earnest about it as well, it would be less of a fish out of water than Keanu Reeves, the... You know, Canadian with the uh, um, with with Hawaiian heritage and uh, this Michelangelo accent, trying his best to sound po-faced, plummy, and British, uh, whilst in Transylvania, he's the Jonathan Harker that this film deserves. And it's a weird contradiction with what they were deliberately doing with the filming techniques that he would actually have made an excellent Jonathan Harker for a version of Dracula set in 1992. Yeah. Also, if you want to read into this as well and go further, Winona Ryder is a passionate American locked inside the body of a, uh, you know, well-at-heel British lady uh, who is trying her very best to be posh, but she just wants to burst out with American passion. Actually, she's a down-at-heel British schoolteacher who's trying her best to fit in with high-class society at Bingo. that point. So what? she's got two layers of fish out of water. Yeah. She kind of makes this film. Her chemistry with Oldman is absolutely essential to it, and uh, you could reimagine it with someone else, but it's... You know, by that stage, you may as well make a completely different version of Dracula. Mm. And what chemistry she has with Keanu Reeves as well, while it is less intense, Mm. works for the dynamic of the characters, particularly when they get back together later on, having both matured through their respective Mm. traumas. I think it's easy for a lot of film critics to dismiss Keanu Reeves because thinking about Ted specifically as uh, one of his uh, primary roles, it's easy to dismiss him as stupid. He isn't stupid. He's a smart guy and one of the hardest working in all of Hollywood. Absolutely. And the fact that he's had a career spanning so many decades and doesn't look dramatically older now than he did, maybe not quite as far back as Bill and Ted, but certainly sort of speed era. He's aged well. He has. Yeah. Very, very well. (laughs) Do not put your faith in such trinkets of deceit. We are in. Transylvania. Transylvania is not England. Our ways are not your ways. And to you, there shall be many strange things. 
I've seen many strange things already. Bloody wolves chasing me through some blue inferno. <laughs> the children of the night. What sweet music they make. Music? Those animals? And then, of course, there is Oldman's Dracula, and it is really tough call to have to act opposite this. And Oldman, we're going to steer clear of talking about Oldman himself, because he said some pretty fucking boneheaded things in uh, recent years. But we're going to focus more on his performance in this, which is world-class levels of Dracula. There is only one Gary Oldman, and he does not share power. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a a way of putting it. Uh, There's many forms of Dracula as well, because he's not just playing Dracula. He has to play different versions of Dracula. So you've got the knight version with the beard at the beginning who's sort of spouting Transylvanian and is is, uh, super intense. Then you've got the ancient one who's kind of quiet and smug and a little bit more Christopher Lee and they say you are a man of good taste. (laughs) This is the one that's full of dad jokes. Yes. He's like a more low-key Vincent Price maybe. (laughs) And uh, then you've got the werewolf, who's this sort of sexual beast who'll, you know, he'll rip your throat out or fuck you. Maybe first one, then the other. Uh, and then he plays a sexy Prince Vlad, where he is more charming and kind of like Colossus. <laughs> Listen to Dracula, has best soundtrack. Um, the kind of guy that you come across in a London street and says, Smile, my love. It can't be that bad. But that's the key one, because if you fucked up on Sexy Dracula, then you've lost the whole romance side oh, yes. of it. Oh, absolutely. And that's the other thing as well. I'm joking, but he does come across initially as a bit creepy and a bit full on. And it has to be believable that Mina then goes, Okay, then. There's something more. Yeah. Yeah. Then he plays disheveled Dracula when Mina leaves, and so he's weeping, and then he's furious, and so he's this kind of desiccated, hate-filled nightmare of a Dracula. Mm. You know, he goes old again, and, and, and you know, he's vengeful. It actually looks the the makeup for that one is incredible. It looks as though his own tears have cut channels through his skin. Yeah. He's well. It, it is implied that he has supreme control over his physical form, and at that stage, he's falling apart. Mm. There's a uh, quite upsetting uh, arc of the the DC comics called um, Identity Crisis, and when Elongated Man's wife dies, he has effectively Mister Fantastic's stretchy powers, but he can't control his physical form because he is in so much grief. His face starts to droop. He he, he just loses it. And it is manifesting outside how we would feel inside. Then Gary Oldman plays Dracula as Mist so convincingly, I actually believed he was Green Mist. (laughs) That is method acting. (laughs) That's like the one effect in the whole film that doesn't work for me. No? When When he comes in through the window, that's fine. Yeah. When he comes up underneath the blanket and yeah. Mina's lying back on the pillow and you just see this guff of green mist <laughs> emerge from the covers. You think that Mina should start flapping the sheets and go, <laughs> Absolutely. Jesus Christ. Dracula, I love you, but please try not to fart in bed. 
really started to be an enormous fart in bed. Absolutely. Okay, now we've lowered the tone, folks. <laughs> he also has to be a bat. And for the bat scene, what? No, no, you go on. It is ridiculous. <clears throat> the way his head turns up <clears throat> like that. It's like something out of From Dust Till Dawn. It's hilarious. And then he has to sort of roar at the people there. And he's got this, like, bat costume. He doesn't have any wings, so he looks like this weird grey creature that doesn't is not complete yet. And it takes an actor of phenomenal calibre to hold his own in that scene. With Anthony Hopkins in the room, no less. And Keanu Reeves upstaging everyone with the worst hair. Like, at that point in the film, Keanu Reeves' hair looks like Doc Brown. <laughs> it looks like they dipped him in a... Vat of talc. Because his hair's gone white with fear, but uh, like it's sort of it's grey and it's gone frizzy because it was a wig that just like got too much air blowing through work. it and it wasn't and sitting a, right. There's a bit at this point where they they have the camera behind Oldman and he's got this kind of saggy bat skin between his legs. It looks like he's wearing underpants made of skin. Yeah, so it's not the best costume, and again, it takes an actor of phenomenal caliber. He only says a few lines, um, but because of the sound design and his ability to just command a scene he holds it together he really does yeah and then he turns into rats dracula which again this is some serious method i believed he was rats and then finally he's ghoul dracula which is like a sadder version of disheveled dracula uh at the end when he's you know this tragic pharaoh a wretched base hideous creature pitiful mortally wounded flailing and done for he completes his art there, and we'll talk about that soon. When you you get the uh, uh, the carriage, we're going back and forth on this one. Uh, after uh, the, um, the the train sequence, uh, by the way, the train is one of the only effects where you're like, well, that's a model, and it's it's not just a model. It's you've just got a pinhole camera and you've put it on a train set. Uh, that's one of the few that doesn't seem that the actual like the model tracks don't don't convince, and it feels like. You couldn't have gone somewhere to just get some like old-fashioned steam train footage for for this bit, and no, they couldn't because on their on principle they had to get everything in a studio. They had to do the model work themselves, and they did the best they could. But also they were kind of reveling in the fact that it was a model. Um, there's a really fantastically set up shot where John is John. John Wick Harker is uh, sat on the train reading a letter or, or writing his uh, journal and you've got the Borja Pass going past. What is What you're getting there is a model train carriage, just a bit of it that John's uh, well, that Keanu's sitting in on springs so that it can move and then you've got a layer of mountains behind him and they're just model mountains and then a layer behind that and a layer behind that and they're moving them at different speeds independently and it is like parallax scrolling that you would have seen in side-scrolling platformers on the in the 16-bit era they've got 
a sense of scale and depth. And it's it's just a model. You know, there are no mountains there. It's it's all just shot cleverly to allow that. And then they're sort of transposing the letter against the screen as well. And there's so many elements there, and you get Dracula's eyes in the sky, which they rear projected onto the uh, screen. It's so little of this is just thrown in digitally and tweaked. It's all just captured in the camera. That's one of the most triumphant moments of sort of transporting you to a scene, even if it does feel like a model. They're presenting you with the theatrical version of Dracula, and you kind of suspend your disbelief for it. At least, I do. But when, when you get to the carriage, which is one of my favourite uh, eerie scenes, like this is, this is the part of the film that feels sort of creepy and scary and the most Halloween-friendly uh, type moment. When the carriage appears, and I'd always had my theories that the, the coach driver was Dracula himself... But apparently it was Gary Oldman in the outfit, so it feels like well that they were they were confirming that one with this particular choice. When he leans over to Harker, there's it's an impossible distance of about 15 feet that his arm travels across. But because the camera's travelling with the arm, you're wondering how it's happening, and then he sort of taps Jonathan, holds Jonathan's shoulder, and an arm like guides him into the cab, and it was down to the fact that Oldman was sort of balanced on a camera armature being tilted forwards and allowing him to do that while the camera filming them was keeping up to the exact pace of his arm. But it feels like some things and some trickery are going on that we can't quite see to allow this to happen. And again, it just feels so much better than if you just had his arm go and just look like some of those shit arm effects from the Fantastic Four movies with Ewan Griffith. And this is a really important element of Dracula as well and, and of the the setting him up as this impossible, can't-quite-be creature. Mm. He has things about him that couldn't possibly be real and yet there they are and Jonathan sees them with his own eyes and part of that is why he ends up questioning his own perceptions but you've got the fact that his shadow moves independently of him he can be in one place and his shadow's doing something very different on the opposite wall where it couldn't possibly be because Mm. there's nothing to cast the light there not so much to be distracting but enough to be eerie and for you to go hang on something's going on there precisely yeah and the the two particular movements that he makes regularly are the reaching which he does in when he's wearing the the raven-headed coachman outfit mm-hmm. and he does that a couple of other times as well and also gliding he moves across the room without any indication that his feet are really moving much at all it suggests that he can move at far greater speed than that as well yeah absolutely and then obviously you've got the crawling up and down the walls which is shown to be not just something he can do but also other vampires end up doing it as yeah. well I think his most human moment comes when uh, John says, Forgive my curiosity, but why ten houses in such precise locations around London? Is it to raise the market value? Do you believe in destiny? That events of powers of time can be ordered for a single purpose. The luckiest man who walks on this earth is the one who finds 
true love. You found Mina. I thought she was lost. Where to be married as soon as I return. Are you married, Count? And it's here. Sir, are you married? I... I was married once. Ages ago, it seems. She died. Oh. I'm very sorry. She was fortunate. My life at its best is misery. Uh, something in Alban's voice when he goes, I was married once. It, it just seems almost personable. He's sad. And he seems approachable and you can pity him there. And because he gives you stuff like that early on, you can think he's more than just a despicable baby-eating monster later on when it's confirmed that he does terrible things as well. So he gives you that level of complexity from the out. We'll talk about the actual being able to be sympathetic with somebody despicable as we go and nearer the end. I did notice that uh, the person who had written or translated that version of Arabian Nights with all the cartoon porn in it was uh, Richard E. Burton, who is the guy I based the explorer Calvin Wilson on in Cartographer's Handbook. He was an astonishing Renaissance man who had like 15 different talents. He was uh, an explorer, geographer, translator, writer, soldier, orientalist, cartographer, ethnologist, spy, linguist, poet, fencer, and diplomat. He looks like Jude Law with a massive moustache, and the fact that there haven't been any films made about him is astonishing. Oh, there was a documentary called The Victorian Sex Explorer. So from the looks of it, he kind of, you know, was uh, interested in sex at an era when people were like, Oh, sex, no, it's terrible, it's terrible. What have you got to, uh, to tell us about it? Lucy. 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 It's medicinal. Have you sleep, Lucy? Lucy. Lucy, Quincy's here. Quincy's here to see you. Bradley, get some breath. Now, Miss Lucy. Miss Lucy, you just rest easy. Arthur sent me to take care of you. He said if you don't get better right quick, I have to put you out of your misery like a lame horse. Quincy. You're such a beast. Lucy is portrayed as lustful next to Mina. We get um, around this scene. She's, uh, I, you know, can a man and a woman really do that? I did, only last night. Fibber, you didn't. Well, in my dreams, and what? No, you don't like that? No, no, no. It's just, I find this scene highly amusing, as I do most scenes where guys try to write young women and how they might possibly talk to each other when they're on their own. It's all very sort of... Pillow fights and Jim Jams. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to 
fight, fight nice. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> but yeah, the, 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 there, there was a constant contrast between Lucy and Mina. Mina is uh, w- w- constant, holds her uh, more lustful impulses inside, and uh, Lucy revels in them. It's. I think it actually ties in with what... There is a line that Mina says, I know she says it in the deleted scene, I can't remember if she says it in the actual film, that Jonathan has said Lucy's behaviour is a weakness of the aristocracy or a deviance of the aristocracy or something like that. Is that where she says, so déclassé? Well, yes, which she says more than once and shouldn't because it's a terrible word. But the point being that the the Victorian expectation of prim and proper behaviour, which Mina has, if not embraced, then is at least sticking to pretty rigidly, even if it's just because she thinks that that's how a lawyer's wife ought to behave, and she's doing it for Jonathan's sake. Lucy doesn't have to because she's rich. Lucy can get away with being a bit more relaxed about her language, uh, thoughtless about her flirtations... Because ultimately, it's not going to impact on her role in society. She's still going to be the daughter of a very, very rich man. And chances are, no matter how she behaves, Holmwood is still going to want to marry her. She loses nothing by being, by not thinking constantly about how she's perceived by other people. And it actually makes Lucy's behaviour really appealing because she comes across as so genuine, natural and mm. genuine. And even though she's doing this sort of, you know, the whole she's pretending to be the, the ingenue and, and wearing the, the snake dress so she's faking the green, you know, she's faking the purity and the vulnerability, you still get the impression that she's this... She's not the naive angel that all the guys seem to think of her as but she is a very genuine very authentic young woman exploring herself exploring her sexuality in a way that she enjoys and has fun with it's an old trope of uh, slasher films to uh, have the uh, the final girl the virgin be this you know prim and proper girl who doesn't engage in sex and to have the whore be the the one who gleefully engages it and is punished the worst and that's a side of horror i have no interest in and find quite creepy mm. uh, the the way that Lucy's portrayed here, I don't think Coppola has any particular interest in punishing Lucy for being uh, sexually active, but uh, the, um, or at least sexually explorative. But uh, the contrast between her and Mina means that Dracula goes to her, and what Coppola and Frost do with the character allows us to really warm to Lucy in a way we might not so much in the book. Mm, yeah. I think for me, the way I interpreted that whole section where he turns up and Lucy goes out to him is that he's tracked down Mina through sheer force of instinct and is throwing out pheromones at this point or something similar to try and draw Mina to him. (laughs) But Lucy, being the far more responsive of the two, gets caught up in it first. She goes, say. Exactly. And he's still wandering in this maze late at night, wearing virtually nothing. And he, at that point, having already obviously knobbed numerous women over the centuries, goes, 
All right, then. In for a penny, in for a pound. Yeah. And pound he does in the form of a wolf. Indeed. But uh, honestly, Sadie Frost's, just to bring it back to her, uh, her performance as, as Lucy, like I said, is very appealing. So when she starts to slowly die and, and get weaker and fade, you feel like something's being taken away from the world. And that underlines again the insidiousness of what Dracula does. He takes out of the world. He steals. He weakens and he corrupts. And he turns what was a very lively, vital person into somebody who is predatory and cold-hearted. Which, again, fits with the Victorian perspective of sex, that sex will make everything bad and vampires are to be avoided because they will make you have sex and then that's bad. (laughs) There's very much a category of vampires as erotic fiction. Mm. Let's stay with the uh, erotic side of things as we get to uh, Jonathan and his little run-in with the uh, the vampire ladies. Uh, we got Monica Bellucci here as uh, Dracula's first bride, and she was in The Matrix Reloaded with Keanu Reeves again. Remember, she makes him kiss her so that uh, she can give them information and Trinity gets angry. Uh, and there's also Michaela Bercu and uh, Florina Kendrick as the other two brides. And again, at uh, 12 years old, I was like, for this particular scene. The prospect of being seduced by three scantily clad vampire ladies, one of whom definitely bites his dick, I might add. Yes. (laughs) There's dick biting going on. There really is. Uh, And now, while he does say later on he was impotent with fear, uh, he was probably in the minority, at least to begin with, in this scene. But like you said with the deception thing, they, they come on super hot and I love the um, the little effect of when uh, Monica Bellucci is sort of on top of him and, and sort of pawing at him they play the sound of a, a cat purring in a kind of she's got this prey in her grasp at that point There's like the, in terms of power he is most definitely depowered and it's you know, they're fully in control until Dracula comes along as the alpha male mm. and starts tossing them around up onto the ceiling. And then two of them spider off in this really weird exorcist way, which is the most, like, a bucket of cold water, I suppose, at the end of that. A little bit. And then just to, to really emphasise that you shouldn't have been finding that sexy at all, or if you did, that was just the cover for something truly rotten. Uh, bringing out the baby and them going, ah, fantastic, a snack. That's, that's a little... That's a lot. Mm, yeah. Again, though, the the Victorian sexual attitude of the trickle down of corruption: the man corrupts the women, the women corrupt the children. Mm. And also, snakes again—they have Medusa hair. One of them does. One definitely. of them does. Yeah. yeah. Before John goes into the boudoir, there's a little desk that he opens up and finds these are perfume bottles, and the uh, it drips upwards, which must have just been a, a straightforward scene of just capture the perfume bottle upside down but there's a lot of this kind of you know playing with gravity and going backwards as well there's there's quite a lot of stuff that's played backwards and then reversed in the film so when they walk away in that spider-like fashion that was them actually walking in but then they played it backwards so it gives you that sense of this is something's wrong here they do that a lot especially with lucy later on 
But yeah, it's an extremely well-played scene uh, in terms of the actual seduction because most people watching it, especially for the first time, would give themselves over to some degree and, and go, well, actually, I wouldn't mind this myself. And then, then when they see the nipples squirting blood, they're like, actually, no, probably leave that one alone. Probably could, could do without the whole unintentional nipple piercing. But it's a good way of sort of drawing you in and then repelling you. It's also a potential symbolic allusion to breastfeeding which is a very nurturing act and to corrupt that to something being taken by force Mm. makes it seem particularly twisted and then you've also got the echo of that when Dracula feeds Mina it's from his chest yeah that's not a mistake it's also noteworthy that the uh, vampiresses used Mina's voice to beckon Jonathan the first time around. That's Winona Ryder, uh, because they probably couldn't have gotten him in there with just their own voices. Mm. Hmm. Neat bit of mental fuckery. We can talk about the other suitors to uh, Lucy at this point. We've got Jack, Arthur, and Quincy. Jack, uh, being uh, Richard E. Grant, there's not much of him in this. He's more of our link to uh, Renfield, who himself is kind of our, this is what Jonathan could become if he's left to the, you know, to the ravages of these terrible women. Mm. And he's also our link to Van Helsing, because he knows him. He's the one who calls him in. True. But, I mean, Arthur could have been that as well. Like, I happen to know an old doctor friend of mine but you know you could easily have technically written dr seward out they could have written jack out like they did mrs westenra lucy's mother a brittle woman of failing health mrs westenra inadvertently sabotages her daughter's safety by interfering with van helsing's folk remedies she dies of shock when a wolf leaps through lucy's bedroom window but it's Right that there are they stayed as close to the book as they could, rather than just going, let's just change Jonathan to Renfield here, just to you know, for for ease of use. And they um I've always liked Richard E. Grant anyway. And they show his weaknesses as well. You you noted that he wasn't that fantastic a psychologist. No, although I have to concede that working with the material he had at the time you can't really expect much more from him. Mm. But it is, it's frustrating seeing how asylum patients were treated back then. Yeah. Renfield, by the way, played by um, Tom Waits, uh, is this like super over the top. But at the same time, he's got this kind of theatrical uh, manner to him. And he's, uh, there's a, a, a curiosity in there. Especially with the way he goes out, he makes Renfield someone that you kind of feel sorry for almost immediately, although very guarded of, because he turns on Jack. It really lost it, man. There's a lovely young girl (laughs) named Keanu. (laughs) And you pointed out that Jack was allowing, um, was hosing down his inmates. He's technically not doing it himself. He's never shown to be cruelly tormenting the the, the inmates of the asylum, but he's certainly standing back and letting the uh, guards Mm. hose everyone down, especially in the middle of a storm. He's very cold and very clinical with them, which, again, is not out of place for the role that he's playing. Although it does carry over a little bit as well in his care of Lucy, although it's very obvious that he does care about her as a person... He's treating her as a hysteric. Yeah. 
he's a, a victim to assumption based on, as you say, he's he's got um, mediocre, uh, right, you know, reading materials and medical records at the time to actually refer to, and he he keeps saying, "I feel like a bloody fool," like he doesn't know what he's dealing with, which was what most doctors were being confronted with at the time when they had only just worked out you have to wash your hands. Indeed, and you know, obviously, God forbid any of them admit that they were floundering and didn't really know what they were doing. There's a deleted scene which I'm really, really glad is not in the film. Yeah. When they try to treat Renfield's descent by drilling a hole in the back of his head. With a hand drill. And it's not it's not a little hole either. Oh no, it's, it's the size of a freaking ten P piece. A chunk of skull. And the whole point is that it, it fits with the he's gone mad, his brain is clearly swelling. What? Maybe if we take out part of the back of his head, it will relieve the pressure and that will help. I say again, what? Like, why is trepaning still a thing <laughs> in this era? How like many I thousands said, of years and you haven't stopped doing it yet? They were still trying just anything at that point. I know, but I know. Like you said, there was, it was taken out, though it, it does leave in Jack's addiction to morphine, which is a really nice weakness for him to have. He's not cruel, he is negligent. He loses himself in... Uh, this this weak fantasy of you know that he could maybe have Lucy and it's immediately apparent when you look at the three of them together and Lucy's affections that you know the first thing that happens when he meets her is fall over mm-hmm. and she goes oh my little kitten my little blossom my poor little like if if someone calls you my little kitten you are not getting any and and if you are they're playing mumsy and that's twisted already Certainly not when she has these other guys to choose from. Carrie Elwes as Lord Arthur Homewood. Not really much to say about Arthur. He is the kind of guy who would be the hero in every other version of the story. Mm. He's he's a lord, he's a straight arrow, and there's not much else to him. Indeed. He's bland, but he's also rich and very capable. Yeah. It feels like misuse of Carrie Elwes, who, again, has this fantastic range to him. But at the same time, he does come off as like rather like this sometimes, which... I think he does really well as Arthur. It's a very small part. But frankly, you could have cast Carrie Elwes as most people in this film. Yeah. With the possible exception of Mina. Yeah. Yeah, he's done American accents as well, which means he could feasibly have played Quincy. Now, Bill Campbell actually comes across as much more memorable. And apparently people were saying to Francis Coppola... How come there's this Texan in there? And he was frustrated at the fact that no one's read that far into Dracula or no other film replicated the fact that Quincy was in the book. Mm. There's totally a Texan in there. If you're a fan of Castlevania, Quincy's like a major part of the Belmont legacy. For some reason, the Japanese are well into Dracula. But you said that that frustrated you, that people hadn't read the book. Um, just the fact that it was such a prominent thing for for Coppola that he was having to take into account that his audience is most familiar with a pared down version of this story. Hmm. And like I say, Bill Campbell's only got uh, a few lines and a few scenes, but he kind of stands out in the background as this sort of vibrant force of of, uh, American passion. And he must have stuck in my head as like when I was like, how do I characterize Frank Butler, the real life uh, husband of Annie Oakley? 
I think I just must have thought of this guy and, and just, you know, the, the moustache and the being very amiable and personable, carrying a gun around all over the, uh, the time and just being this um, handy Texan to have around on your side. So when he dies at the end, you know, accurate to the novel, it does feel like there was a necessary loss for the end so that it wasn't all, well, thank goodness we all got through, apart from old Dracula, that there's a sense of real sacrifice there. Mm. And it is sacrifice because ultimately Quincy gets the closest to actually delivering a killing blow. Yeah. Because he isn't relying on guns, because he's got this knife, but to use it, he has to get close, and that puts him in enough danger to end Mm. up... He's already been stabbed, but it seems like Dracula broke his neck, so any movement on his part, and he's just bleeding out anyway. And then there's uh, Abraham Van Helsing... Uh, Anthony Hopkins, who was fresh from Silence of the Lambs at this point, and uh, from the uh, early uh, footage, seemed like he was playing Van Helsing even crazier than he eventually ended up playing him. And uh, Van Helsing, as written, uh, always pissed off Coppola, who felt that he was a bit too stuffy and not particularly interesting, and he played him much more irascible and like this um, crazy old wizard which is perfect for this film because you want a Gandalf to help guide you through the uh, Dracula experience. And he does have that Gandalf thing of, okay, we have finally met the uh, end point of my understanding of this matter. And he admits to not knowing everything. So he knows more than the rest of the guys, but less than everything. Mm, Yeah. And that's interesting seeing him set against Jack, who is also floundering in his doctor role, but doesn't like admitting that he doesn't know what he's doing. Feels like there's a bit of Jack in James Penrose as well, folks. Those marks on her throat. No disease, no trituration. I'm sure the blood loss occurred there. Oh, where did the blood go? You were once a careful student, Jack. Use your brain. Where did the blood go? Tell me. The bedclothes would be covered in blood. Exactly. You do not let your eyes see nor your ears hear that which you cannot account for. Something just went up there, sucked it out of her and flew away, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, why not? That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. Will one of you learned doctors or whatever you are kindly tell me what is going on with my Lucy? Jack, you are a scientist. Do you not think there are things in this universe which you cannot understand and which are true? Mesmerism, hypnotism, you and Shark electromagnetic fields, materialization, astral bodies. Do you believe in UFOs, astral projections, mental telepathy, ESP, clairvoyance, spirit photography, telekinetic movement, full trance mediums, the Loch Ness Monster, and the theory of Atlantis? I feel like a blundering novice. Gentlemen, we're not fighting some disease here. Those marks on your dear Miss Lucy's neck were made by something unspeakable out there. Dead, but not dead. It stalks us for some dread purpose I do not yet comprehend. Although he is sometimes a creep, there's there's objectionable moments, like when, they, when he first meets Mina and he dances around with her unbidden, which is quite untoward for uh, Victorians, and then um, says, you're the light of all lights, and then smells her. And it's like, please don't smell me, Dr. Van Helsing. But it's a good way of keeping him at odds with the uh, main cast because the, you, you don't quite know where he's coming from. Hmm. And he does seem somewhat mad. Was she in great pain? Yeah, she was in great pain. Then we cut off her head and drove a stick to her heart, 
and burned it, and then she found peace. Doctor! So the See the Amazing Cinematograph is where they use the old, old type of camera and they uh, re- they increase the size of the grain for the film and they change the colour of it to, to uh, better represent uh, old film stock. And uh, it's it should really be in sepia tone, but they've added some faded colour to it and it, it's got that you know, brilliant jerky movement at the beginning to sort of say, right, this is actually, if we had a camera in the street at this point in 1897, would have been what it looked like. So it really puts you there in that time and place. And even though the set for the London section is you know, just a street and a bit, it completely puts you in the place. The Prestige does this as well. It really gives, gives you a sense of, of being in um, Victorian London. Uh, Sherlock Holmes, the Guy Ritchie one, does mm. too. There's a really good way of doing it, actually, that's relatively subtle. You need coal staining on the bricks mm-hmm. and dirty cobblestones. Yeah. If your cobblestones are clean, it's never going to look right. Yeah. yeah. It's important to note, by the way, that Coppola set out to do this with no CGI or digital VFX uh, and he fired his visual effects team, the, the the ones that he started with, who said that the shots he wanted could not be accomplished without modern digital technology. And he hired his son, Roman Coppola, who was only 24 at the time. So they had to fight the system to get their rear projection, their multiple exposures, their miniature effects, their false perspective, their matte paintings, their front projection, and their reverse motion. They also pull out most of the sound during this whirring cinematograph uh, section so that you can hear it faintly in the background, which, again, really gets your attention while they're discussing the cinematograph. So this is like his biggest homage at this point to that that particular era. There's no reflection as uh, Dracula takes the newspaper from the uh, boy Uh, in the window. I didn't notice that. You just see the paper. There's there's quite a few other bits where they'd specifically focus in on a mirror that should have somebody in it Mm. and doesn't, but I didn't notice that one. Other new century inspirations I have noted down here. Mina... There's a lot of Mina in Rebecca in Let Them Go, and there's a lot of Lucy in Amanda in Let Them Go, mm. as in the one who's trying her best to be uh, you know, straight and upright and a businesswoman, and the one who is more free-spirited and more imaginative. Mm. And in Amanda's becoming more beast-like. Well, yes. The, the sense that Amanda's slipping away from Rebecca absolutely is the Lucy and Mina dynamic. And uh, Dracula, I put some of Dracula and some of, obviously, John Cocteau's Beast and every other version of Beast in Seth as well. So he's got that dangerous magnetism about him. You did not think it would end this way for you. No. Would you be part of my family? Leave your own behind. You mean... You mean become one of them? Us and them. It is so simple when put in three words. I can make things that simple for you. All you'll know is life. Sharply. In every way that your family do not. He had lifted me up and pulled aside my jacket, exposing my shirt. I moved my hand to pull the covering back over, but he easily held my arm in place. I tensed my entire body, my mind racing for any possibility of escape. Mm. 
No escape. His teeth grazed against my neck. And if you'd like to hear how that story goes on, you can buy the audiobook of Arlington on the New Century Multiverse Bandcamp page, priced at $12. So Prince Vlad, the young sexy Dracula, expresses his love for the cinema, and Mina scoffs and says, you call this science? And she's kind of trying to show off, and uh, like she's already said, uh, like kind of trying try to turf him away. Um, and you know, saying, saying that he's untoward by even approaching her at all. I love the fact that he has sunglasses here. It's not the sort of thing you normally see in, in Victorian uh, settings, so it already makes him seem like he's exotic in this particular place. So Mina's kind of overcompensating. He takes her out back and then starts to succumb to his urge to just take her, just jealously grab her and take her for himself and uh, bite her and make her his own, and then holds off on it. But the way it's shot is like a rape scene. You know, he's holding her face and she's rather troublingly, you know, she's, she's pushing him away but also seems to be ever so slightly into it. There's no two ways about the fact that this is quite a rapey moment. I think this is something that you're always going to have difficulty with. With when, vampires, yeah. Well, with vampires, with anything set at the turn of the century, with anything that kind of utilises that Victorian moray about sex. It's also the aspect that he's just taking here. He like throws her down yeah. using his you know, insane physical strength and he's just going to take her. Yeah, and obviously part of what they want to get across... And everyone else turns a blind eye to it, I admire. Yes, indeed. But part of, of, I think, what they want to get across here is that Mina is... She's got Elizabeth coming through. Yeah. And she recognises him and that is enough to throw her off her stride and not really know what's going on around her. And I think the, the main thing that comes across for her in this is that she is she is distorted. Her perception of what's going on is not quite as it should be mm. because she is internally confused. However, the bit that's more striking for me is actually when they first meet. And it, if you take that scene in isolation, he approaches her, she tries to kind of brush him off and, and move on and then he says something that makes it clear something like oh, I've, I've offended you I'm, I'm sorry I'll leave you alone and she's like oh, I'm, I'm so sorry I was rude you're a stranger in town I need to help you and again if you take that in a superficial that, way he guilts her into being polite absolutely and in isolation that's, that is a frustrating scene because it's got that sense of you know girls being having it drilled into them you've got to be nice to strangers you've got to help people where you can it's not polite to snap at people and tell them to fuck off and leave you alone um, even pulling the husband card is almost seems as though she's been a bit heavy handed there and I think the way that is okay certainly what makes it feel more comfortable for me is that from the very beginning of this Mina's been set up as somebody who is internally very passionate very wanting to explore herself wanting to know more about the world she wants to visit new places she's curious about things so her initial kind of 
closing off and pushing him away is actually not her. That's not her instinct, that's her training. Mm. That's her prim and proper, no, a, a married lady doesn't talk to unmarried gentlemen. But then when she allows herself to become a little more herself, then she softens and, and kind of acknowledges that, like I say, that element of Elizabeth that's coming through and making her feel drawn to him and wanting to follow that lead. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And he pulls away from it in the end. It seems like she's surrendering and he holds off at the last second. And it is like what he was about to do is immediately equated with death for her because the imagery we get within this circus tent of uh, illusions and, and new you know, film tricks is of a woman in a coffin, you know, becoming a skeleton woman. And then there's chaos and Mina runs away from him and runs past him again because, again, he can move around the place. But the way he seems to draw her back in again is because this white wolf is roaming about the place. He tames the wolf, and then she strokes the beast that is tame. She's effectively being drawn into his bestial magnetism, which he is taming for her. Again, kind of troubling, but at the same time, accurate to the allure of some men for some women. Absolutely. And also, there's something very specific about the the part where she sits down and strokes the wolf. She keeps her gloves on. Yes. Now, if somebody gives you the opportunity to pet a wolf and you don't take your gloves off so that you can feel it with your actual human hand, mm. then you're not flipping human. <laughs> I don't think I could resist that temptation personally. Mm. Uh, he later plies her with absinthe, which uh, I won't go into the precise details of uh, what it was, but it's an incredibly strong Victorian drink that uh, would fuck you up royally. They, they sell absinthe now, but it's kind of an imitation of what it used thing. to be. It, it's basically a hallucinogenic? Yeah. It, 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 it uh, will wreck you. The, they, uh, the, the way it's prepared is accurate to the uh, film. They would distill it through sugar cubes and um, because it's incredibly sour as a, a drink. And he mentions the green fairy, which is, is kind of the thing that bewilders your senses uh, when you're drinking it. But when I say it fucks you up, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm serious. It's, it's um, close... LSD in yeah, a bottle. Effectively, yeah, closer to LSD in a bottle. Chalouse-Lautrec um, drank it, and then his legs fell off. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but uh, yeah, Mina imagines Transylvania with uh, imagery behind to show, uh, and this is wonderfully sort of transposing the the, the, the countryside we've already seen with uh, her thoughts and they soften it. And there's lots of images on play when she's remembering this, and it feels like she's absolutely ab accessing that part of herself from centuries ago. And um, he does that thing where. Uh, he tells her about the river princess legend and then she cries and then he catches her tears and turns them into diamonds and i think that's in the age of youtube and and their you know, like you know haha -ha college humor sketches that's the one thing that would be parody in a kind of ha oh, that's really sweet but seriously were you carrying a bunch of diamonds around in your pocket for just in case i started crying after you fed me that story because this seems weird <laughs> What was that? What's up? Did you just say, don't you dare close your eyes? Yeah, it was kind of like, look how beautiful everything is. What do you mean by don't you dare, though? I mean, I... Is that a threat? No, 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 no. Even when I was younger, I was like, did he 
actually turn her tears into diamonds, or did he just have them in his pocket? I think he just had them in his pocket. Yeah. I think he was going to give them to her either way. It was just a an opportune moment to mm. palm them. Well, it shows that he's kind of a magician, and he and she's she loves his illusions, and she loves the the exotic world that he's feeding her, mm. and um, she's kind of addicted to him at this point. And the absinthe probably helped. Yeah. And the emotional priming of the story. Yeah. And everything. He got her into the right state. He's as manipulative as hell. Oh, yeah. This is the thing. It would be remiss of me not to at least acknowledge. On behalf of womankind. (laughs) That the same arguments for why Edward is a fucking creep in Twilight can't also be levelled at. Dracula, the original creep vampire. Side note. Edward is seen as a hero and we're constantly told how good he is and how nice he is and how he drinks deer blood. Dracula is outlined as a villain in the text. Precisely. That is the difference. Exactly. He is, at at best, he is a tragic villain. Yeah. Same as Christian Grey. He's not positioned as a villain who's bad for Anastasia. He's... I mean, he is bad, but I can change him. He's positioned as a, as a, a tragic hero that you can rescue yes. and blah, blah. Yeah. The element of Mina's consent is also quite important. Yeah. This is something that she wants and he brings out of her. Yes. And also because you can't... Like it is inherent to the film that she was Elizabeth, that you know this is it's not just coming out of nowhere there there is a, a, a something greater at work here. she's back, and that part of her deserves to be given a chance to make its own choice as much as the the rest of her that's lived as Mina see that's I think that's a little bit less clear cut because yes, there are facets of Elizabeth in her. Mm-hmm. But when Dracula is released at the end, the implication is he goes off to be with Elizabeth in heaven. Mm-hmm. Now, if we're talking strict reincarnation here, Elizabeth can't be in heaven and in Mina at the same time. No. Well, okay. Here was my theory on that. Uh, Princess Elizabeth's soul could not go to heaven because of her suicide. Mm-hmm. Not because it is a sin, as preached by the clergyman at the beginning, but because she had business to attend to, accepting Vlad's death. Because she died mistakenly believing he was gone and wanted to be reunited with him. But he cast himself out of heaven and out of God's love because of her suicide. She was reincarnated as Mina. We don't know how long she waited or whether time went very quickly or she went through multiple lives in between time. Uh, But her path in... This life, at least, whether it was in other lives, was to close out the loop. This is a theory as to what Elizabeth, the, the, the essence of Elizabeth had to do. She had to find peace together with Vlad and then destroy him and send him back to God. So she effectively gets to live on because she is essentially a good person as Mina. That doesn't mean she won't then be reunited with him in heaven as promised by the mural at the top. But I, I believe that she is positioned as Elizabeth in the film. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's just me interpreting the script, which was interpreting the book that is 122 years old. That's if you want to quantum leap it. If you like, right, what's actually going on here? And this is not me 
um, dicing it up and making uh, what is mystical and magical and unanswered into scientific quantifiable fact. It's, it's my interpretation of a spiritual journey. That's fair. Okay. So back to Castle Dracula, Jonathan's getting sucked dry, and he goes, he leaves the, this is just a little bit, he leaves the castle and goes out sideways, and then there's that really neat little bit where he um, appears to be going along the side of the castle, and then he, like, drops down sideways as gravity is once again not acting in his favour and he, he, he falls sideways along a castle where he would normally be falling down. It's filmed, obviously, from above when you get a handle on it, but if you're watching it for the first time, it's a very disorientating shot. And very well handled, especially as in the original uh, edit of this, he lands very neatly on a balustrade and then goes wandering off into the uh, castle to, as accurately to the book, uh, find Dracula in his coffin, smack him with a shovel, and then Dracula springs up and goes, Blair! And then the vampiresses catch him and drain him dry again. And it's like, well, how did he get out? Because it's much more protracted in, in the uh, one with the early footage, so it's much cleaner in the film. He just falls into the river and then finds some helpful religious types who nurse him back to health. Again, in the deleted scenes, he found a bunch of Dracula's gold, and it feels like he shouldn't have to give them Dracula gold. A, it makes them less charitable, and B, that's like Nazi gold in these parts. It's got, like, Dracula's face on the coin, mm. going, one, two... Two pounds. Eh, eh, eh. Sorry. No, sorry. Two drachmas. Ah, ah, ah. That's grace. Okay. Two rubles. Ah, ah, ah. Then Mina leaves Prince Vlad behind. He is riven with sadness. And then that sadness turns to anger and vengeance. He takes Lucy in revenge. Uh, again, in the form of a wolf, it's highly sexualized. All of the times when Lucy gets bitten... She's making sex noises. And I think that's, again, very uh, you know, important and not a mistake. It seems like uh, the way Frost is interpreting the character, it's her expressing her life. And while she's still making those sounds, she's still alive. As soon as she stops, she dies. The beast is coming out in her a lot in these the scenes immediately preceding this yeah. as well. She yeah. becomes more animalistic as she moves towards death mm. and starts trying to pull other people in. Yeah. In the same way that she was pulled in. There were rumours that... Um Bram Stoker himself was suffering from syphilis, so uh, Coppola theorised that this is that the whole story is effectively uh, the nightmare of a man whose blood has been poisoned and is slowly dying from it, mm. and that makes perfect sense. Which effectively is what underpins the whole Victorian fear of stroke obsession with sex. I mean, it's not just this, but the colonialists brought back all sorts of VD, having knobbed their way around the world. Mm and were now horrified by the fact that all of this sex was going to ravage their society if they didn't find some way to keep a lid on it. The scene where Dracula finally takes Lucy for the last time, uh, there's one bum note in it where he goes up the steps of the uh, garden terrace and you get a Dracula's eye view and he throws Quincy aside like he's made out of wicker and then stands at the window 
as Arthur Homewood is snoozing in a chair, Arthur wakes up at the commotion outside, Dracula roars, and Arthur is flung backwards. <coughs> now, in your head, whatever you imagined was way better than what they use in the film as they speed up Carrie Elwes is being flung backwards, and it's the exact precise speed of a Benny Hill. So, it wrong. Don't speed that up. Don't it use looks that silly. Technique. There are no circumstances under which it looks okay. Anyway, so uh, he, he then uh, drains Lucy dry in the form of a wolf. The next bit is the one bit which I feel like should have been mentioned, like from the book that did that stuck with me from when I read the original version that didn't make the final film. There are newspaper reports about uh, children in London seeing a beautiful uh, white a woman wearing a white dress uh, tempting them to come to graveyards and they, uh, they she becomes quite infamous as the blue for lady which is the beautiful lady and that's a really haunting because like nothing takes place in first person this is happening now in Dracula so hearing these accounts it's, it's bone chilling hearing what Lucy's become and they could possibly have fit in one newspaper article about it. Mm, yeah. It is quite a significant element of her her character and of the story. It's a reference to the myths around the demon woman who is not at all motherly and is in fact very sexual and extremely dangerous, which originates with stories like Lilith. It's very, very old. This is not just emerging from the, the Victorian terror of sex. This goes back a long way. All around the world, we've given names to these monsters. There are vampires in the graveyards of Budapest. The Talas in the charnel grounds of India. Our ghoul haunt the Arabian Peninsula. And the Algonquin tribes of the Americas speak of the Wendigo coming in the depths of winter. But this beast at her threshold has been spoken of in England by another name. That was an excerpt from New Century, Let Them Go, now available on Bandcamp, attractively priced at $7. But one thing I really like about the, uh, the way the wolf going after Lucy finally is framed is, again, it cuts between that, which is effectively Lucy and Dracula's wedding night, to Mina and Jonathan mm -hmm. finally together and, and getting married. They've got this Christian... I think it's a, an Greek Eastern Orthodox. Eastern yeah. Orthodox or well, it's, it's Eastern Orthodox, Eastern yeah. Orthodox, yeah. yeah. Uh, Christian wedding sacrament and the... It's very dispassionate versus the carnal coupling that we're seeing. Absolutely, which which is between, almost portrayed as a corrupted yeah. version of that. And they even, I think, they even have the uh, the wine they're yeah. being given the the sacrament of the wine, yeah. and that's Lucy's blood becomes the sacrament for her wedding night. Yeah, and the blood. Oh, the blood. You didn't like the fact that... There's so much blood. The the last shot of that where like she, Lucy screams and blood cascades in from the left and the right. Apparently that was the last shot they did of the film with all the leftover blood. They festooned the room with it. Do you think that's a bit heavy-handed? I think it's a little bit heavy-handed. The fact that the bed's empty as well makes it seem a little bit pointless. It's symbolic. I know. But yeah. 
Yeah. Also, probably Sadie Frost had gone home at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I don't blame her. So. Probably found out they were going to do it and was like, I'm yeah, not no, going to be there. I'm busy doing <laughs> anything else. Jude Law. So. <laughs> also, the fact that they put her in a glass coffin. She looks like Snow White. It's really creepy the the way that she's presented. They, they bundle her up in that all, that wedding dress with that great big rough. She looks like a bird who swallowed a plate, and Which, all of her hair is hidden under that um, ridiculous hat. Ironically, had she been wearing the huge ruff, Dracula would have found it a lot harder to get to her neck. Yeah. But yeah, they take her out of what she would have been more comfortable wearing. It's not the least bit sexual. It's this uh, restrictive and... Um, it's almost like what you put a baby in for a christening, like that you didn't expect to need to move its limbs or to walk or anything. Which, again, does fit with the fact that everybody refers to her as, as a child. A child. Yeah. She even, I mean, she even, she actually is referring to herself as an as becoming an old maid. Practically a hag. Exactly. She's 19. <laughs> 19. Right, I have a question for you. Yeah. For when Jonathan sees... Vlad for the first time. He's grown young. Yeah. Does that seem weird that he would leap to that conclusion immediately? No, I think I feel like Jonathan sensed the energy pouring out of Dracula and oh, okay. he, it felt very familiar and he recognised those eyes. Mm. Okay, that's fair enough then. And then you get his best line I know where the bastard sleeps. Oh my god it's amazing. <laughs> but that's the thing. We watched a bit of Dracula Dead and Loving It earlier today and I thought, why bother Mel Brooks making a parody of this film and making it funny? It's already funny. At some points intentionally, at some points unintentionally. Jonathan, what is it? It's a man himself. Look, he's growing young. We did 20 ticks and that was the best one. Doctor, you must understand. I doubted everything. Even my mind. I was impotent with fear. I know. But, sir, I know where the bastard sleeps. I brought him there. Lucy in the crypt, when she comes down the stairs uh, and the candles light, that's one of the various backwards sequences where she actually walked backwards up the stairs while they pulled her dresses on wires and then blew the candles out and then just played that in reverse. The most complex moment is where she goes back into the coffin and it drags her dress in there as well. And like, There's a, a wonderful bit when she sort of gets up on the bed before Dracula uh, comes in dressed as a wolf, dressed as a wolf, and uh, you know, sort of puts her arms up and her dress moves around her and it's got that uncanny um, backwards. I think this is probably the film with the most backwards footage played forwards of any film, possibly excluding Doctor Strange with his use of the time gem. <laughs> But yeah, her you know vomiting blood all over uh, um, Van Helsing. There's a lot of Exorcist in here, and uh, the the shots are, are, are quite complicated. But it makes for a very pure kind of you know the power of Christ compels you moment. Everything that really mattered about Lucy is now gone, and this creature isn't her anymore. No, I was going to say that Van Helsing doesn't even address mm. her. He says, uh, "I cast you out the prince of darkness into hell." He's speaking directly to, to Dracula. Dracula. Yeah. So the way that Renfield is there but for the grace of God goes Jonathan, this is what might happen to Mina if Dracula fucks her up too much. And then Lucy's severed head becomes a uh, hunk of roast beef and it's maybe the most crass shot in the entire movie but still well played. 
it's disgusting, which I think is the uh, the intention. I actually felt bad because when we watched it today, it made me feel hungry. Oh, for goodness sake. Not you want the some head, head beef? Not the head, obviously, but the fact that you've got roast beef and no. terrines of potatoes and vegetables. It's the head or nothing. <laughs> and then Mina meets uh, Renfield briefly and he uh, tells her to get away, which is a, a, a lovely little redeeming moment for him and he shows his humanity and then he is battered to death by Dracula while still begging for eternal life. It takes a lot to make the Renfield character pitiable. He seems like he was doomed from the start. Like, you know, everything that he got after getting back from Transylvania was this bonus time, but it was terrible bonus time. And also that with Dracula casting him out, it's possible his soul may be saved. Again, in the world where uh, God absolutely definitely exists. So Coppola brought in acting coach Greta Seacat to coach... Sadie Frost and Winona Ryder for their erotic scenes as uh, Coppola felt uncomfortable discussing sexuality with young actresses. Hmm. He did mention in uh, one of the commentaries about the vampiresses that these girls, they come in and they seem to be up for sex and nudity when they're in scenes and then when it finally gets to the scene and they're asked to do a crab walk backwards straddling each other or be thrown to the ceiling or eat a baby, suddenly they get uncomfortable. I mean, honestly... Yeah, uh, he's not a man who deals with women. <laughs> Coppola did ask Gary Oldman to speak seductively off-camera to Sadie Frost while they were filming a scene in which she writhed alone in her bed in ecstasy. Sadie Frost later classified that the things Oldman said to her were very unrepeatable, which is diplomatic of her. Uh, Winona Ryder found the intensity of Oldman's acting style too much at times. The two fell out early in the filming process and had difficulty working together from then on. Coppola stated they got along and then one day they didn't. Absolutely did not get along. None of us were privy to what had happened. Ryder has referred to the trauma of the experiences and said that she felt there was a danger while working with Oldman. However, she was also referred to her friction with Oldman as teen drama, stating Gary was going through a divorce. I think I can say this because he's pretty open about it and he's been sober for a long time now and he's raised three kids and he's been a dream he's a good friend of mine now so it seems like gary wasn't in the best of sorts while filming dracula and to history's benefit he used the turmoil he was clearly going through although treating your other co-actors shittily is not excusable Uh, but somehow both he and Ryder managed to sort of parlay that into uh what i felt at the time and still do was a lot of heat going on between them so then we've got this effectively sex scene uh, coming up between them now it's very emotionally and sexually charged now Coppola said on his solo commentary he now feels like sex scenes are like knife fights that he's always uh, felt that like sex scenes were supposed to be between two people feeling sexy but then when it comes to the actual day you can't get them to feel sexy because you've got cameras here and there uh, they you know they get cold it takes ages they don't like each other you know they get self-conscious about nudity around the crew etc and that if he thought about it and, and could do it again he'd shoot them like highly coordinated knife fights you know where it's like i'll put my hand here then i'll drag the knife across and then i'll you know you you jump over here and you put your leg here and then there there, and just do the whole thing like a fight so it's highly coordinated and i thought fuck that and bullshit you can't manufacture sexual frisson and chemistry with coordination it will look like a dance it will look like it's coordinated but it won't feel like it has heat and somehow 
he did manage to make it feel like there was heat here, even though at least one of these people is supposed to be very cold physically. <laughs> but that makes sense that he he'd be um, that Coppola would be unable to really fathom how to make a scene sexy for his actors. The way that he talks with such frustration when things get tough. Well, I think that the difficulty with creating any scene that's meant to be sexy is the same difficulty that you have in creating a scene that's meant to be scary. Different people respond to different things. A director can make something that genuinely arouses them Hmm. and sometimes that will really work and sometimes it really won't. Notably here in the actual scene, I think what works about it is that Vlad is more conflicted than Mina. If it was Vlad who was like, no, I definitely want to turn you at this point, and Mina was like, I'm not sure, what about Jonathan? It would have felt really uncomfortable, and again, quite rapey. If they'd both been unsure about it, and they'd both been going back and forth, and he'd be like, I want to turn you, but I don't want you to die. And then she'd been, I do do want to be turned, but Jonathan, then they would have felt non-committal about it but she has now allowed Elizabeth out of herself and she's embracing everything and at, at this stage abandons Jonathan and her old life and just everything she just doesn't uh, take me away from all this death equates to I'm done being meaner Harker yeah, and, yeah from now on pretty much and also you've got if you if you pull out all the supernatural elements from this and just look at her as a woman at this stage mm. She's on the sunk costs train now. (laughs) She's sacrificed, risked, corrupted so much of her everyday life that at this point he's all she's got left. Yeah. And like I said, he's conflicted about it. And so uh, he goes back and forth with the, yes, Mina, no. And he doesn't seem wishy-washy about it. It feels like it's genuinely causing him pain to have to decide this and that. So that when she embraces it even harder and he kind of gets a victory there, it seems like he's, that Dracula is finally winning. And... I suppose you do get uh, like a sense of the the, the pain and, and, and loss for for centuries for him, and that he really has just not had things like he, you know he's ridiculously rich, but he's living in this ruin and he's this decrepit shell, and he doesn't get any of the respect he used to, mm. and he's lonely as fuck. And I think you can also read a little bit of, and this is actually something that makes him very human, certainly very like the other men in this story, that he knows what kind of women throw themselves at Dracula. Yeah. He doesn't want Elisabetta to be that kind of woman. Yeah. Because she wasn't like that in life, it would appear. She's very pure, much like Mina. Yeah. So he wants he to wants Mina to love him as a man, and she can't because he's not a man. Mm. And I think that's what's really killing him in this scene. Yeah. No, oh, I cannot let this be. Please, I don't care. Make me marry you because I am to walk in the shadow of this for all eternity. I love you too much. Take me away from all this 
And Mina completely accepts everything that Dracula is, all of his darkness. And this scene ultimately proves his undoing because he doesn't want her to. And while he gets short-term pleasure and gratification and validation, on some level he does realize he is better off being nothing. But like I said, it's a, it's a very powerful scene and then it comes to a sudden abrupt halt as uh, Van Helsing and company run in with Jonathan's hair. And again, like the actual bat performance is, is uh, powerful, but then he turns into rats, which is kind of silly. And the actual bad part of this scene is where they run around going, get them, they must be burned. And Mina's scrabbling around on the floor, muttering to herself, unclean, unclean. The camera's all over the place. I think Quincy or Jonathan trips a bit to try to catch one of the rats and stab it. And then it cuts straight to Carfax Abbey on fire with, like, no ceremony at all. It is the worst edit, the worst cut, the worst way to end a scene just after Mina's just muttered to herself, unclean, unclean, trip, fall. And it's not even like an establishing shot of someone falling. It's like the camera's ever so slightly behind them. Watch out for it next time. It's so cack-handed. And I, I cannot believe that in the edit there was no better way to transition. Because this film is full of fantastic transitions. All right! It's like there's four seconds of the movie missing somehow. Like a, 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 an establishing shot of rats from outside this building with rats running towards us to show that Dracula is getting away. But they just didn't have the footage. And maybe just some, like, some music to end in a more conclusively, he got away... Like a something. And like that, he's gone. But yeah, it's it's one of the only poor edits in the film, because otherwise it's really tight. Then they travel with a purpose back on the uh, manifestly modeled train, and Mina remembers herself, and again, she has to come back to being Mina, and, she, and Jonathan blames himself, and they, you get this, uh, I believe Lindsay... Ellis referred to them as the breeding couple, the ones that we want to get together, the two romantic leads in the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Hmm. Romantics invest heavily in this pair. Everyone else invests heavily in the roguish anti-hero. Hmm. It's also really worth saying that Bram Stoker's Dracula, the 1992 film, lifts heavily in the new Mina Dracula romance. The ill-fated obsession of the dark male with the pure female, who has to choose between him and the good man who represents a stable, solid future for her, and Andrew Lloyd Webber's The Phantom of the Opera, which came out only six years earlier in 1986. Next year we'll be doing a podcast on not only the London stage play, but the Joel Schumacher film. And I think we're some of the only people that love that film. But then when they get to the Borgia Pass and uh, Mina goes off with uh, Van Helsing and starts to become... What would you describe Mina's behaviour at this point? I don't want to say anything that would make me sound like an ass. She's becoming more vampire-like. 
mm-hmm. which means that she's starting to trace the same path that Lucy did. She's becoming more overtly sexual, mm-hmm. and well, she gets her tits out and puts his face in them. Yes, indeed. I believe she, she says the words "have a bang on those." <laughs> <laughs> I don't think those are her exact words, but the go on, have a bang on those. She start well. She starts talking about how Lucy. What was it? Lucy knew ways to please men mm. and she talked and then she, to me. Sorry. It's very juvenile. I didn't want to sound like a pig. <laughs> and yet. And yet. <laughs> <laughs> but here's the thing. Van Helsing, we don't get to see any conflict because he's like straight away, oh, straight away, just any motorboats her. <laughs> oh. He's like, ah, she is the devil's concubine. It's not pleasant, really. But the... He only snaps back to attention when some vampires show up and he goes, oh yeah, I am a vampire hunter. This is the thing. There is a there is a sense of conflict about this because it doesn't actually seem that Mina is being genuinely, authentically sexual. This is not coming from her. She's putting it on. She's putting it on. It is a manipulation. She's trying to get Van Helsing under her control. Maybe she thinks if she loves him up enough, he'll turn into Hugh Jackman. Maybe. Yeah. According to the timeline, by the way, uh, this Abraham Van Helsing was Hugh Jackman less than ten years earlier. God, what the hell happened? The years have been kind. (laughs) Did somebody start paying you in absinthe? Yeah, it's like 1888 Van Helsing is set. Really? Yeah. My God. Although Jackman's Van Helsing was referred to as Gabriel Van Helsing in that silly movie. And he's also basically fancy Wolverine. Anyway, moving forward. That's what he gets for hanging out with all of that VD. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Behold, the ravages of age. (laughs) Anyway, so Van Helsing gets horny and then he gets mean because he does the communal wafer thing here that I mentioned before, the practical effect that's quite magnificently done, even though it's very, very small and no one would even really notice it, especially not these days. But when he goes into Castle Dracula to, to hunt down the uh, vampiresses, he's got this kukri knife uh, and just hacks their heads off without a, a second thought. He, the, again, he's very single-minded. Like, the one thing that, for all of Dracula's uncertainty, Van Helsing seems very dead set on what he's doing. But again, like Gandalf, he's just helping the other heroes get to where they need to go. So there's the chase and the uh, fight with the uh, Romani people, who I'm not going to use the G word now. Again, all filmed in a studio and uh, quite frenetic the way it's uh, put across. And we get the, uh, the the final climactic battle and the death of Quincy. And the fantastic line from um, uh, Hopkins, we all become God's madmen, which I believe is straight out of the book. Actually, the Dracula quote from the book, which I don't believe the book is anywhere near as good as this film, is from Van Helsing way earlier when Lucy's just beginning to get sick. He's talking to Jack Seward. Let me caution you. You deal with the madmen. All men are mad in some way or the other, and insomuch as you deal discreetly with your madmen, so deal with God's madmen too, the rest of the world. The meaning of this is twofold. Only madmen would undertake such an idealistic crusade in the name of God, or that any who were to take up arms for the crusades of God God would surely drive mad. We've all become God's madmen. All of us. Way better. Kind of a brilliant way of showing that even though they won, they lost. Mm. Well, it's it's a, a hollow echo of what Vlad Tepe's life was yeah. before he became 
this demon. He was God's madman. He was murdering and burning his way through the Turks. Yeah. For the sake of the church, for the sake of God. And then we get the uh, death scene, which Mina has to be responsible for. And again, I think for all the silliness that happens in the film, the uh, focus of this scene really brings it home. It's got a, a lovely, quiet feel to it. It's not overly melodramatic. They do one of the only digital effects in the whole film where they uh, morph and transition Dracula from, uh, from the, the ghoul into uh, you know bearded... Um, Knight Dracula, then back to Prince Vlad. So he's the version of Dracula she's come to know. Mm. And what really comes across in his very limited, in terms of vocals, performance here, because he's just given up, seemingly, is that he's no longer furious. Mm. He's no longer angry. That hatred has just drained out of him. And he's not just accepting death in a way that of giving up. He's just... Tired. Yeah, he's welcoming his end. He's he. In fact, he almost seems beatific. Yeah. Well, I say almost. That transition uh, of the 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 morphing of the face. He looks very Jesus-like, and I don't mm. think that's accidental. And again, if we're taking that God is a major character who never says anything in the in this film, it would appear that he is re-embraced, sins forgiven, or at least sins accepted. And he gets to not have to go to hell. Maybe God just calls it even, like uh, you've uh, you've done enough for the church. You also did some horrible shit for several centuries, but it was on a small enough scale that, as you say, like you know, he's only preying on X amount of people, but he's slain enough Muslim Turks that it balances out in God's great checkbook. Ugh. Yeah, there's a thought for That's you, folks. Wildly uncomfortable. Yeah, it um, is. This whole ending is, of course because of the romance element and the forgiveness element, a grand departure from the book, wherein Jonathan simply slashes Dracula's throat with a cookery knife at the gateway to Castle Dracula. Quincy rams that bowie knife directly into his heart, and he just crumbles to dust, and Mina becomes no longer a vampire. And in a deleted excerpt that never made the final book, God smites Castle Dracula from the earth, just destroys the castle, just heaping his disgust upon that spot. So from Bram Stoker's point of view, Dracula was absolute evil that needed to be removed from the world. The film lends us a more forgiving, complex view. The way it could be read, certainly the way I read it, is because the rejection of the church and of God was, apart from the initial refusal to bury Elisabetta, mm. it was very one-sided. He lashes out, he walks away, he proceeds to commit acts that he considers to be atrocities. Yeah. And it almost seems like the ease with which he is accepted back into God's light at any point over the last 400 years. He could have, done he the could same. have stopped what he was doing and gone back to God, and there would have been, he would have been welcomed as a son. But it seems like part and parcel of that acceptance is understanding that Elisabetta gets to go on and have a happy life that he wished she'd had in the first place, in this case as Mina. Yeah. And that's part of his being willing to let go of his own life, is being willing to let go of her. Yes. And the mural suggests in the roof that the things we 
lose don't get taken from us fully and completely in the way that we despair and believe is happening. And that's really what the end of this uh, uh, film is. It's um, allowing despair to slip away and just accepting the cruelty of life, finding peace in the process of both forgiving and being forgiven. So the conclusion of the romance, and obviously the romance is the most important part of this film because it lives and dies by this. It is, I love him, but he's a murderer, not the other way around. It's not, he's a murderer, but I love him. The other way around is quite troubling. He's sexy enough to make that okay. The, the important part is that Mina chops his fucking head off and feels sad about it. Mm, yeah. Well, that is an indication of a healthy state of mind in her that she knows where the boundary is and when to hold it. He's a murderer, but I love him is indicative of blurred boundaries at best, no boundaries at worst. There's no line you could cross that would make me turn away from you. That's... Honestly, that sounds romantic, but that's not healthy. It's horrifying. Yeah. So, like I said, they've got it the right way around, and the final piece of music, which you said until I took a long time to convince you, should have followed immediately afterwards, uh, is Love Song for a Vampire by Annie Lennox. And I think it's important that we do get that little bit of a breathe out with da 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 because it needs to remind you you've just seen a Dracula movie and that you need to, like, you, there's that emotional peak and then the, the, the calming, sobering, melancholy vision at the end. And rather than just immediately sweeping you up in this very intense song, they go, you've just been watching a Dracula. And you know, just to, to restate that this was an adaptation of this book, which is, which is a gothic romance, but the gothic comes first. And then after that, it transitions to the uh, the, the sadder, more um, creeping music, then turns into Love Song for a Vampire, which is one of my favorite songs ever. Again, I, I, I believe I've asked for um, Into the West to be played at my funeral. This one's still up there. It's got, um, if you watch the music video, Annie Lennox is... is playing it as Dracula she's got these like vampire fingers and if you listen to the lyrics it's not from Mina's point of view at all it's this is Vlad singing and there's a sense of something broken in the reasoning within the words and understanding that this could lead to terrible behavior and there's a jealousy within the song as well but it ends with the line set the spirit free with that note of acceptance again So this is the bit that you should end the film with rather than have it immediately play after the the, the head chop and then uh, just play some Dracula music afterwards in the tail end of the credits. It's perfectly pitched to just finish off with that sense of that you've just watched something very moving and memorable that will haunt you. Hmm. At least that it does for me. Yeah, and you're right about the jealousy as well and... 
I hadn't, I mean, obviously I knew it was there, but I hadn't really thought about it until then. She plays up to it in the, the actual video with the yeah, crazed expressions the, it's and the grasping fingers. And it's the, it, particularly it's in the line, let me be the only one to keep you from the cold. Yeah. If, if somebody you loved was freezing, would you really mind who gave them a blanket? Yeah. No, I wouldn't. Of course not. And yeah, I've talked about love and obsession before on the show, but uh, at the very end, the difference between releasing obsession and releasing the person that you love is uh, is made very abundantly clear as Dracula gets to no longer be obsessed. So yeah, he's a tragic anti-hero. He is pitiful. He is romantic. But he's a mass murderer, and it is right and proper that he be taken out of the world and that Mina be the one to do it. School of Movies is funded by our loyal supporters on Patreon. And our $15 tier gets sponsor credit every episode. So, a Transylvanian-sized thank you to... Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Kevin Otero, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungias, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. They say you are supporters of good taste. <laughs> Next week, Event Horizon. So that was Bram Stoker's Dracula, Francis Ford Coppola's best film. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's, School's Out. out. Thank you.
心。